Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. My guest is J.K. Wyant, and we are at the Public Library in Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, to discuss Dragon's Pick, the Dorothea and Browen Trilogy, a fantasy tale of dragons, riders, and a young woman making her way in what is largely considered a man's fight. And I am very happy to have you on board. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Tori. Well... We met uh, just a couple of months ago down in Chambersburg at uh, a rather unique event, I'll just say. Yes. <laughs> yep. That was a craft fair, but they had a couple authors there with us, and we didn't do too great, but I think the connections that we made were what was best out of that show. And that's why I, I do generally go to a lot of these. It's it's You try to be very hard... Uh, not to get on yourself about, okay, you're not selling. I mean, you sell a little bit, but uh, events like these, it's what puts us out there, and you hope that you meet people that get interested in your books or get interested in what you're trying to do, and you hope that you can take it from there. Yeah, kind of like planting that seed in people's minds. You know, maybe a grandparent comes in, and they have a granddaughter who's turning 14, and you tell them about your book, and they tell their granddaughter, and, you know, later down the road, they buy your book, you know, somewhere, or they see your name somewhere, and it recognizes. So kind of making those connections, then networking with other authors. Yes, exactly. Well, you certainly... uh, got some attention for this trilogy and I was really interested in the fact that you had what I would consider a pretty solid trilogy of three books you had them to present and that sort of thing I want to ask about Dorothea or Thea and all of that but we have to start with, I, I, I saw this, you wrote your first book at 13, so let's go way back <laughs> and let's find out about you and where did this all begin? Wow. Well, um, I started at the age of 13. I um, picked up a couple different books. I was a Tolkien fan. My mom's a huge yes. Tolkien fan. Yep. And I read Chris Rapellini. And then um, I read some other books like Cassandra Clare. Um, I even read Twilight. Um, mm-hmm. So all of those kind of inspired me that, you know, I didn't maybe quite like the way that this story went or this one went. And I thought, you know, I should just make up my own story. What would I want to write about? What would I want to see? And at the age of 13, I you know, wrote my first book. It's actually a, a um, young adult fantasy, too. And I wrote a trilogy back then. And I've been working on it for years now. It's still not ready for publishing. Um, but I kind of got started that way. I wanted to make up my own books. I wanted to live in my own world. And I did that. <laughs> and that's the thing we read about is... We, we read to get into some different worlds or to discover a new place, something that we can't physically get to when we're kids. Yeah, Isn't yeah. Isn't that it? It is. And I, you know, I just talked to somebody about recently about, they say, well, you always write what you know. And I'm like, I don't want to write what I know. Why would I want to write what I know? I want to write something that I would never be in or be in a situation in because I want to live that life. You know, I don't want to live in a fantasy world. It'd be amazing. I'm never going to. So I want to write about it and put myself in it. And that was the thing for me was, I don't want to write about myself. My first pathetic stab at (laughs) writing when I was 14 was something that if, you know, it is, I, I tell this story because it's a true story. I wrote a short Western novella just for fun. It was about, oh, I did everything absolutely, utterly wrong with it. It was, <laughs> it, it was 
for whatever reason, I typed it on five by eight note paper, single space on my mom's typewriter. Oh my! But she encouraged me to finish it, and my freshman English teacher found out that I was writing it, and he says, "I want to read this. I really want to read this." And I thought. Okay. Well, I managed to get it done, mostly because my mom put my nose to the grindstone and made me finish the damn thing. (laughs) And I handed it in, and he gave it back near the end of the year, and he liked it. He thought it was really good, and he he encouraged me. And I still don't know how, because it was a Western that was incredibly violent, (laughs) rather bizarre, didn't have a lot of meat to it. And a couple of friends of mine on the bus, well, not really friends, but they knew me and they, they read it and were like, hey, this is pretty good. You should do more of this. And I thought, okay. And I honestly believe that's what kept me from failing freshman English. Mm. I think that I think it did. They encouraged you. Well, it was either that or social promotion because <laughs> I don't think anybody did very well in this class. <laughs> but no, and it's, and it's funny because I look back at that now and I laugh about it. And it's like, isn't it amazing how far it's like now we you are at Dragon's Pick. You can see how far you've come. You can see your growth, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, when I reread my first trilogy a couple years ago, I'm like, oof, oof, that needs some work. And, mm-hmm. you know, but there is such a difference. And and my mom is my editor and she's my biggest fan, too. Um, but she's my editor. And, and just reading this new series that I wrote last year compared to my old one that she had originally read, she's like, there's a difference, Janelle. Like, there is a big difference difference your writing has really developed you've matured and you know lots happened in that time period too so you know your 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 writing changes so much over those years and that's what's happened with me it's mm-hmm. it's interesting that uh, i could never really even write i only started seriously writing about 15 years ago really and uh it's one of those things where All of my energies in broadcasting were writing news copy, commercial copy, do this, do that. And the best I could do was songwriting for my old band and for myself. And once I got done with that, I suddenly got to a point where in the midst of the band, I started writing some longer pieces and I thought, okay, I got an idea. And for whatever reason, I just got locked in on it and my current series, my current trilogy, the Sweet Dream series, is what I began with. And I bashed a bunch of it out, and then I had an agent for it, nothing happened, and then we come back. And after three or four years, I get another look at it, and I'm like, my writing style has completely changed. Mm. My my grammar has somehow improved. And isn't that it? I mean, like, what did what did your mom notice, and what did you notice about your writing that has improved over the years that that really jumped out to you? Well, definitely the grammar. Okay. <laughs> definitely the grammar from a thirteen year old to a twenty eight year old. It's definitely changed, but just also the situations that I would place my main character in is has matured too. That she noticed, you know, just the situations, the way she handled things, and I'd say those were like the biggest thing: the grammar, and then just the main character situation, how she would handle things, how she would say, how she would respond, all of those things kind of were a big change for me is what she said. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about Tolkien. That was my touchstone Mm -hmm. into fantasy as well and these others. And then suddenly you've, you've got the drive to do it. And as you said back at 13, I want to do this. Was there any one thing that just said, I want to do this, I will do this? Or was there anything that set you off and 
really pushed you over the edge? <laughs> Probably finding out that Christopher, to- I'm sorry, not Christopher. Yeah, Christopher Pellini. I'm sorry. Christopher Pellini was 15 um, and he published his book and his parents were, of course, publishers. But that that set me at saying, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. I might have be 13, but that doesn't mean I can't write a book and publish by 15. And I was trying to work on publishing at that age, 14, 15. I had query letters sent out to publishers. And of course, I, I didn't get any responses back, but I think I got denied of course but that was kind of my drive was I saw he did it and I'm like I can do it too well that's the kind of thing you you hope for in yourself and when you hear someone say that you think that and it you know and I went through the same thing before I got signed to Sunbury Press it was just a, a long slog of finally getting a book I mean I hadn't stopped writing I just kept writing all these things. And I had one book that uh, we self published it because as my friend Alice said, you need to push one of your birds out of the nest Hmm. or nobody's going to sign you. Nobody's going to know you're there. And Mm -hmm. so I put parasite girls out by myself in 2013 and it did get me signed. And that plus the hardest part of trying to get the other things looked at was just so, um, it's 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 like going for a job. I usually say that to people is trying to get the right query letter, trying to get what an agent wants or what a publisher wants to send out is like applying for a job because there's you have to do everything they want and as much of a pain as it is, it's like this I sometimes think that when a publisher or when an agent says, I want the first 50 pages, they will be done in Times New Roman 12. They will be one in one half space. <laughs> they will be this, you know, no headers, no footers, this, that, the other, and I want it now. Yeah. And it's like, okay, are you doing this to see if I can follow directions? <laughs> are you doing this to see how malleable the writer is what? <laughs> yes. No. And they're so particular. And I feel like it's almost like, okay, you do one little thing wrong. Nah, decline. Not going to, not going to, not going to sign you. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those waiting games. I kind of feel like that. Like I published cause I was sick of sending out these query letters and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to publish for me. I'm not going to wait for anybody to sign me on or, or get a, you know, request back for more documentation for the book. I'm going to do it myself. Isn't that it? It's like, Uh, I mean, we talked about this before we went on, and I came to the conclusion a long time ago that we really do write for ourselves. Yes, yeah, most definitely. This is our art. This is what we want to see. Mm -hmm. It's our baby. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you really do hope that people like it. You hope people jump on it. And I think that's something we can talk about as we go along. Uh, we are going to come back and we're going to get into the land that Dorothea and Browen and all of these interesting characters do. Uh, my guest is J.K. Wyatt here on the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books is your home for the writings of independent authors. Loch Ness Books is our young adult imprint, including Joe Harvey's Summer Changes Everything, Deanne Baker's The Boaters Club, and Arcane Maurer's Forbidden Powers series. Find these and other books by diverse authors at sunburypress.com. We're back with J.K. Wyant, and she is the author of Dragon's Pick, the Dorothea and Browen trilogy. And we have to begin with sort of the elevator pitch who is dorothea how what is the dragon's pick tell us like what we are about to step into 
Well, Dorothea is the first female dragon rider in about 20 years, and she is picked in her village, Villa Ovo, by her dragon, Broen. And this is big for the for the town. It's big for the village because, again, she's the first in 20 years. And she's kind of just this farm girl. She's pulled in then to this world where she learns how to become a dragon rider with three other boys. And she is in a man's world, she realizes, pretty quickly. And if she doesn't shape up and, and become just as strong as them, she's not going to be able to stay at the academy or the um, the dragon's uh, academy to finish her, her dragon riding and her dragon will get taken from her. And there is so much that is alluded to early on of the mystery of what really is going on here. Um, the first thing we have to talk about is um, there is a map at the beginning of this book for uh, Imarius, the land that, uh, that Thea is from. It looks kind of like Northern Europe based on <laughs> where it is and, and so forth. Were you looking for any specific spot on the globe to set it in, or is this is this something completely different? This is something completely different. I had in my mind what this map looked like, and I actually wrote it on just a piece of paper before I even did it um, like on a graphic design page. And I just started writing on it and it looked awful. It looked like a five-year-old drew it first. <laughs> but in my head, that's what it needed to be. And I just kind of wanted to show her, you know, through the books where she goes and where she travels. And, you know, she starts as just this little farm girl in Villa Ova, never going anywhere else to you see by the third book that she travels all over. Mm-hmm. So the it's not based off anything in particular, just something in my head. When you started to plan Amarius and and build this world, did you give yourself any ground rules about what can and cannot happen? With the world, you mean? With the world, with what Thea might be able to do, like... Is there were there any guidelines that you gave yourself to sort of stay within to sort of so that maybe she couldn't just magically jump out of a problem she has to solve it kind of thing? Not not exactly. I think that like, you know, just making sure that I don't have her jumping from one city to the next on a, a dragon and being realistic about where she's flying and how long it takes. I know um, my one coworker, Becky, she builds maps herself too. And she said, you know, she gave me some tips on it as I was building it, not in my head, but in like when I was putting it on um, like a graphic design page, she said, you know, have to be realistic about your lengths and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like she can't just be in Villa Ova one day and the next day she's in Mount Garnathia. It needs to take probably two or three days. So that made me think realistically about it. Like, hey, I have to really plan out Mm -hmm. how long it takes from point A to point B in this map. Now, is Villa Ovo a typical village in the kingdom? Because it it has the feel of a medieval period, but maybe a little further along in history by uh, by the industry and by the way people work and that sort of thing. I would say it's pretty medieval. I It's kind of like that fantasy world. So I kind of could do things a little bit, maybe not as modern, but maybe a slightly bit modern just because it is a fantasy world. I know when my mom was going through and editing some of it, she was like, well, you can't say that because technically it's medieval. And I'm like, but it's my fantasy world. So it can be whatever I want. But I'm like, realistically speaking, it needs to, it's pretty much medieval times, except for the dragons kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to ask about the names. Uh, One of the things that I try to do in my writing is I try to find interesting names 
I try to use unique names, but I, I, I usually just take the names that come to me. Like the Sweet Dream series is largely set in Japan, so I began with names that came to me, but then I had to research the names and find out what do these names actually mean so that I get them right. And um, I also make a conscious effort to stay away from like names of my family members. <laughs> yes, I am the exact same way. Um, <laughs> my main character, I like to do a lot of research on them before I pick their name. I like to find a name that fits them. Good. And yep. then as I'm writing, and this is going to sound crazy, but my characters make me kind of pick their name for them. They, I feel like they kind of speak to me in a way and say, okay, hey, this is my name. And you know, when I look it up, I'll be like, oh, that fits them. That meaning of that name fits them. So, and yes, I do not, I do not do names of family members or I try not to do friends or anything because I don't want them to be interpreted to that person, that character. Um, but as I go along, I kind of just pick throughout, throughout my head what maybe fits them. Sometimes I have to look up characters, but... And do characters just show up? Do they just show up in your consciousness? Oh, 100%. Yes, 100%. Especially those side characters that you're like, you already kind of, they kind of come in as you're writing and they kind of tell you your, their story a little bit and you only are able to give maybe a slight look of them. But yes, they definitely kind of come in and tell you their story a little bit, as crazy as it sounds. And yes. do they do they arrive fully formed or they, do you have to sort of attach more of their personality as time goes on? I'd say probably it could be both. It could be one or the other. You know, it depends on the book and the character. But my one character, Thomas, um, he in the very beginning was just kind of one of those not main character. He's a main character, but he's not a fully formed main character. But throughout the series, I kept feeling like <laughs> he was trying to tell me, hey, you need to show more of my story. And in the third mm -hmm. book, I do show a little bit more of his story. And I'm like, okay, this this is what this is what was needed to happen to kind of give a little bit more depth to each character because I know each character's story and I know what's behind them, but my reader doesn't because my reader's only viewing from the main character, her right. point of view. So it is nice to kind of dabble a little bit and kind of carve out those other characters for the reader to find. Right. And do you ever find yourself having conversations with Thea and the gang? <laughs> yes, all the time. I feel like um, I drive to work; it's only about twenty minutes, but I. I feel like I'm in there and I'm mainly my main character because again, it's, it's that, it's that first person. So right. I tend to have conversations that they would with this character or that character to kind of, kind of put myself in their shoes to see how would I feel if that was happening? How would that person, what would I be seeing on their face yep, yep. to, to kind of explain and detail that in my books? Yeah. And that's, that's something I, I find that a lot of authors do that. You find yourself having these discussions with them and it's also usually when I'm trying to sleep is when I'm having the discussions and the scenes start coming and I am so old now that I am not the person to leap out of bed and immediately <laughs> write it all down because I'm just like I've, I've come to the conclusion that if this is that good and that valid and I've not done it before it'll come back to me when I wake up mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at that mm -hmm. I, I'd like to think um, interesting thing now in the medieval period and from the beginning, there is the great excitement of the dragon eggs and so forth. Thea, however, just seems to be put into the idea that young women like her are supposed to get married, have kids, all that. And it's like she seems to be concerned that, geez, you're just mom and dad, you're just trying to marry me off. What's going on here? But I've always felt that Thea has a lot, right from the beginning, she just seems to be a bit more rebellious and a bit more of 
maybe feminist for that period, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yes, I would definitely say that she is. And I think the world that she grow, grows up in is kind of uh, they are for that. They're for her being young and getting married right away. And like Villa Ova is very much that old school. But as she travels and into the second and third book, she finds that not the rest of Amarius is like that. And they're actually, especially when she gets to Kingsguard, they are definitely more woman strong. And they're like, yes, you can do whatever you want. You're strong. So, but she doesn't find that when she's at, um, when she's at the school and learning how to be a dragon rider, because they definitely are kind of putting her down. And she's a strong female, and she realizes she has to become that way or else she'll get eaten alive. Exactly. Now, before we get to that and some of the situation she finds herself in, the dragon eggs were fascinating to me. My question, though, is, I and maybe I missed it, where do they come from? <laughs> and tell us a little about the fascination that the, the townsfolk have of, well, well, when do they hatch? What are they going to be? Will they pick my my son? That kind of thing. So that is something that I don't really allude to until the third book as okay. to how they get there. So in my mind, of course, I know how they get there. <laughs> um, but it is kind of one of those special things about this fantasy world and about Amarius is that there is some secretiveness to this, to the dragon eggs being in the ivory forest. And, you know, people, they know that just at this time of year in the spring, they have to go out and find those eggs and collect them. And there's so much excitement about these eggs, this this world. And Marius loves this idea and loves the eggs, but there is a, f- a secretiveness to it. And nobody really knows who the eggs are going to be hatched to. And a male dragon is very rare. Is there any reason why males rarely hatch? Have, is that something that is that Thea and her friends discover later? Maybe it's not. It's not necessarily. I don't know if I ever really comment on it, but it's mainly because they are they are so aggressive. That at least this is what's taught to them is that they are so aggressive, huh. and that they are hard to train. Which of course Thea finds out that they aren't. That these are what. Um, Edgar is telling people that is and what they're preaching and kind of telling everyone that they're aggressive and they're hard to train. But in fact, they're actually very protective and possessive of their riders. And how big are they? Because without giving too much away, uh, Browen gets awfully cozy with, with Thea right away. And I'm like, how big is this dragon? Well, when they're first hatched, they're about the size of a cat. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I actually have an egg. Um, Becky, my coworker, she actually made me an egg, which I brought to the book, the, <laughs> yes, the book signing. <laughs> so in my mind, when they hatch, they're about the size of a cat, and then they slowly get bigger. Okay, so it's like there was, <laughs> there's a Game of Thrones moment there. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm just reminded of Samuel L. Jackson doing the Game of Thrones. Like, aren't they cute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not as dangerous as those. <laughs> That's cool. Um, now, the writer's spots obviously are very heavily prized. Um, Thea's friend, he doesn't seem like a friend. Colt seems much of the idea he's going to get one. And you have... You have a, a good antagonist right away because he comes off as a very typical male, but there's something more driving him. Tell us about Colt and what, where does he come from in Villa Ovo and what makes him think he's all that in a bag of chips? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, he's he and, and uh, Thea have grown up together. Right. So, of course, they've kind of had this strange relationship and, you know, it, it's that kind of that young adult's 
first love kind of thing. Like he's always liked her, but she has no interest because she doesn't care. And, you know, he comes across as this, you know, just rude man. But of course, he he likes her. That's the whole thing is he does like her. And but growing up together, you know, they have that that odd relationship. And that's the thing. Uh, a lot of my lead characters are female. And I've been asked about why is that? And I think it was probably because not because there weren't boys around when I grew up, but girls always seem to be better friends and yes, there was that, you know, you know, uh, you're a girl. And <laughs> the friendship that I may or may not have had with one or two of them, nothing happened because I was so completely not aware of the feelings that come about until you get a bit older. You know, they always say, well, you know, he's about the age, he should start being interested. And I wasn't. And uh, I know that my, the one really close friend that I had who was female, I don't think she did either. And it was kind of like, there's that, isn't that that weird stage of everybody else thinks something, but it's like, you know, Thea just sees Colt as kind of a jerk. Yes. And yeah. Colt is like, it's like, well, I can't show her I like her because then I'll look soft or something. Yes, that's exactly. And he's young. Like, I, I always try to remember that they're only like 18. So they are supposed to kind of be that way. And they haven't quite matured. And they've lived in a very happy-go-lucky world. Yeah, exactly. So when they go yeah. to Castle Draco, it does change a little bit. And when things get real, they start getting a little bit more mature and real. Mm-hmm. Now, we talk about a couple of these others. Ty is another boy that is chosen. And I, if I remember right, he comes from a different village. Or is this another? Yes, he comes from a different village. Um, and again, whenever the Villa Ovo gets the eggs and finds the eggs, they're bringing people from all over the villages to come and possibly get picked to be that dragon rider. So it's a big deal. And honestly, if you get picked by one of these villages, you know, Ty came from a very poor village. So for him to come and get picked, it's a big honor and a big honor to his family. So he, of course, loves Thea. He sees her as like a sister, as somebody that he can cling to. And Thea didn't have any siblings, so she kind of automatically automatically goes to him as well. And that's one of those other relationships, kind of like what you're talking about. He's a little younger, but she finds that a really sweet relationship with Ty exactly. and even Thomas too. And Thomas was the one you you had said that we find out a little bit more about his backstory later yes. on. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to be sort of the one, the fourth one, the one off kind of like, okay, when are we going to find out more about him? And he seems like the side character that's like, well, I'm here. I just haven't asserted myself. Yes. And he, I love him because he does have that that sense of humor that I think every friend group has, you know, there's always one out of the four that's kind of the goofball and he's kind of like that, but he does become a little bit more serious in the second and third one. And his relationship with Thea grows that friendship that they didn't really have in the first book. The second book, especially they kind of grow that relationship and you see that protective kind of brother that he becomes to her. Mm -hmm. And Castle Draco is like, this is the training ground. This is, this is the thing. And it, it, there was this sort of feeling of they have arrived at this place, and it's like they're very well looked after. Like, for example, uh, Mary becomes the servant to Thea, the girl that kind of looks out for her and takes care of her. Edgar is kind of the guy who's sort of running the camp, and he's going to do the training and oversee everything. And, and yet, you get, uh, you get us right into the fact that this is going to be very heavy physical training, and it's like... They need to learn how to fight, mm-hmm. and not just with swords. They need to really learn how to fight. And 
the thing that that obviously is going in Thea's mind and others' mind is, okay, we're learning how to do all this. We're going to ride the dragons, but as people say, the people who go off and ride the dragons rarely come back, if ever they do. And it's like that is a, like a nice heavy mystery that never really seems to get figured. Not in the first book. <laughs> right. You you learn towards the second and the third where a lot of those dragon riders go. Um, so there is there is an explanation for that. But I won't mm-hmm. say anything. Okay. <laughs> well, no. And, and the other thing, too, is um, plot twists. There's two or three really intriguing ones. I'm not asking too many questions about <laughs> certain people because of the, the nebulous nature of themselves. But it's like... The hardest part for me is to put together a twist. And so what I have ended up doing throughout my life is just like, I'm just going to let it happen. <laughs> yeah. When How do they come to you? It's like, do because sometimes you can see certain things where people look back and there's like, okay, I think I've seen this backstabbing scene someplace else or here's the double cross and now he's going to do the go around and, and that kind of thing. But how did they come to you or do they do they come like that or do they come like, okay, here it is. All of a sudden you're trying to put it together and here it is. I'd say that I'm kind of starting to write and it comes to me. Like, mm-hmm. again, like that weird thing that my characters kind of tell me what they're going to do. That's kind of how it is. And that's what a lot of my plots have been. Like, I'm writing and as I'm writing, I'm just kind of going with it. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. Didn't know that was going to happen, but that sounds good. So they kind of developed. And, and there was a few key plots that I was setting up all along. And you'll even see it if whenever you finish the series that, you know, as a writer, you don't just put random things in books for, for just any reason. You put them in setting something up. And I know that whenever I have, um, you know, friends or family who read certain things before I release the second and third book, they'll say, well, why did you do that? And I'm like, well, just just wait. Or they'll say, well, I think there's a mess up because this is added for no reason. I'm like, nope, there's always a reason for every little thing. I'm probably a little too detailed on some of them, but there's a reason for everything. There's a reason, you know, why Thea goes from being, um, you know, so weak to stronger than almost all of them. You know, there's reasons for all of those. Well, that's part of Thea's growing up, and it's it's her natural growing up. But there's clearly something. You know, she is the lead, so something's going to happen. But it's like you can tell that something is changing about her as it's going along, and that development. You you can't just do that overnight. It's just something that comes as it does with every other thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Did you have? reaction like you were just talking about do you have a lot of people going okay wait a minute what just happened here (laughs) do you have any of that yes I've had a couple people go what that's what happened at the end and um not going to try and give too much away, but my second book, there's some major plots in that towards the end that I had people texting me after finishing it saying, you did not just do that. I had my sister mad at me. I had my sister's friend mad at me. And I'm like, hey, just you got to wait for the third book. And I had people literally asking me all the time, when is the third book coming out? When is the third book? Um, so yeah, they definitely had a good bit of reactions from people. <laughs> Great. Well, we are going to get into the next two books of the series just a little bit and talk a bit more about J.K. Wyant's work and what is coming next. We will do that in our next segment. You're listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Just to 
Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States, Jason Altmeyer's Dead Center, and A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. We're back with author J.K. Wayant and talking about Dragon's Pick, the Dorothea and Rowan trilogy. And we have been going through this first book, and it is a really, for me anyway, it, it was a very quick pace. And you had said earlier about too much detail. I, I think there was enough to like give people an idea of, of putting them in this place. And uh, we were talking about trying not to give too much away. There are two more books in this series, and uh, trilogies are always nice if you can if you can make book two a little you know book two and book three work. And I write kind of in series. The Sweet Dream series was that, and I have others that aren't uh, published yet. I'm not sure if they're good enough. And it's one of those things where it's like. You know, and, and I always have people ask about certain books and say, well, is there going to be a sequel to this? We'd like to know what these people are up to. And I'm like, if I can get a second book that's not too thin, <laughs> how hard was it to get the second one as meaty as the first and, and the third to the second? Well, the the first one was a pretty, like you said, a quick read. I think it was only maybe 150 pages. And um, the second one and third, I actually already had mapped out in my head as I was writing the first book. I was actually going to make it one big book. But like anything, I can't do just one book. I have to have three. I it's 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 me. I definitely. I, it's hard to write just one book in a series because I just I have so much I want to say. Right. But it was easy. And then once I once I finished Dragon's Pick, I went straight into writing Dragon's Loss. I mean, over probably within a day, I was back to writing it again. And it is a lot bigger actually than the second book. And the third book has got them all topped. I think it's closer to three hundred pages now. So um, it, they get meatier as they go. <laughs> and it just felt like, okay, we can't take 50 pages from this and smoosh it into here. It just doesn't work that way, does it? No, no, not at all. And that first <laughs> book, like it ends, I think it ends pretty good, but it still allows the reader to know that there is more to come and that you need to read the next one to see the end of their story. And the second one, of course, you have to read the third book. Like it snatches you in, pulls you in, and you have to get that third book. Yeah. And it's... That's that's kind of how a lot of my work is done. It's just like I, I found that the Sweet Dream series wrote itself. And I, at the end of the first book, I still hadn't even finished writing the first draft of the first of, of Searching for Roy Buchanan. And then two new characters popped up, one of them completely fully formed, and they're like, let me in. Hmm. And I'm like, well, where am I going to put you? And it's like, okay, I got to write another one. And it came pretty quickly, and the third one as well. And... um that doesn't always work that way. Sometimes an idea and a concept just plays itself out after one book. And I don't, it doesn't bother me too terribly much that way, but sometimes you, you, when you start with one, you get that big idea and you have the big dream and you're like, I want this to be that big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you have a feeling when you started writing the, the series 
you know, did you think it was going to go to three? You like threes, but was it going to go there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I knew right away that like it, there was no way I was going to wrap up all of what I wanted to say and what Thea wanted to say in one book, like her story. And I'm really big about character development is I wanted readers to see her progress from one book to two book to three book. So I wanted them to have her see it and even a prequel. And I can never stop writing, of course, because I think, and you're probably the same way, you build these characters, you form these characters, and they form themselves, and you fall in love with them. You fall in love with their character. They fall in love with their habits, their personality, to the point that you don't want to see them end. Mm -hmm. And my family knows and my friends know that I hate endings. I absolutely hate endings. So if I don't have to end things, I won't. But yeah. I I did cry at my last book when I finished the last sentence of it. And um, But it, it helped me because I knew that my prequel was going to help kind of also do that. And first of all, the emotional element, when you become emotional at something you have written, like seriously... And I found this myself, that when I go back over certain things I've written in the past, I don't know how these scenes came out because I'm not good at writing those things, but they come out. And then you you get hit again and again at that same spot. You're like, okay, if this happens to me, think of what that does to a reader mm-hmm. because they don't know this is coming. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something? Yes, it is. I, I love to have that emotional um that emotional control <laughs> over over your readers and over yourself when you're writing these scenes because you're like, oh, this is going to hurt. <laughs> but it's it's so good and it makes your characters be more lively and it makes your readers feel more impacted. And it makes your characters real. It yes. makes them more human. And that's the thing I notice about Thea all the way through is, yeah, she's a girl, she's a kid, and she has a very headstrong point of view about some things, but she also has those moments of being naive, having those moments of not always being quite what she needs to be, but that makes you human because it's like uh, if you have characters that just don't ever do anything wrong, they become boring. Yeah. Now, the other thing too about endings is kind of cool because I try never to end a story myself. I always try to leave, it's like, I want to leave the door open in case I want to write something else. I can I could I can say to people that well this is a this is a good ending for this part of the story. Now, is there going to be more? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if if I wasn't planning a series, it's like, well, let's see how this first one does. And then the question becomes, okay, is there more? Have they can they do more? Can they do something else? So I like to leave the open door. I mean, I know people who say they love the happy ending and there's nothing wrong with that. Um I'm not I'm not thrilled with the cliffhanger ending quite so much. It it some do it just for its own sake and it's like Okay, that's fine Mm -hmm. if that's what you want. But the open door is fun because then that leaves everybody intrigued. And like you've said, people are like, well, what happens next? What does she do now? Yeah, yeah. I have a couple characters that I know that people, because it's only in in Thea's point of view, all three books, I've had several people, my sister including being one, um, who is saying, well, what about about Colt's story? What about um, some other character's story? What about them? Like you made them so intriguing. I want to see their story. So like you said, I've kind of left that open that if I would want to 
extend that series, I could. And, and I may may or may not have written a few different characters' point of view, but mm-hmm. will it ever get published? Maybe not. But that door is open. Well, and that was the thing. Did you set yourself the the idea that that we have to tell the, that we will tell this from Thea's eyes uh, I occasionally well actually more often than not I will do chapters or scenes where other characters point of view just becomes so important that we need to see what this other person is seeing because they see something that other people won't and it might be interesting and there are times where uh, when you're dealing with other characters who have a, a role to play that sometimes they have something to say. Colt's story might be good for a future. Uh, it, it might be good for a future story. It might be good to at least give him part of it. Mm-hmm. And he might have, it's almost like he might have a chance to confess a little bit or something. Yes. there And there's a lot more of Colt that a lot of people don't know about. And of course I know it. And my sister had told right. me that. She's like, you know, <laughs> right. you know it, Janelle, but but we don't. So you need to share it. And I'm like, you know, may, maybe eventually I'll, I'll have his point of view and, you know, who knows what the future is in store for that. Mm-hmm. One thing about fantasy, um, do you think whether you tried to do it or not, do you think that maybe you broke some ground somewhere? Do you think there's something in your series that maybe the typical fantasy reader has not seen? I would say probably a female dragon rider. I don't know other than, you know, maybe Game of Thrones, but she, you know, Khaleesi kind of, you know, not trying to, you know, spoil anything, but she's not very good. <laughs> but, you know, I think that having a very strong female dragon rider who starts from the bottom, she starts as a weakling. You know, it, she's not automatically amazing. She's not automatically an amazing fighter. She has to develop herself. And, you know, I've read character developments in other books, but I feel like I've not seen this before where she starts getting punched and pummeled to -hmm. the ground to waking up with bruises to becoming an amazing dragon rider yeah yeah and that was the thing it's like so many characters male or female or whatever they see you know you have the beowulf type of thing you have the, the the supreme talent that just blows everyone out of the water but that doesn't really and that works in a heroic way and sometimes that works when you're facing something that is even more insurmountable but you know it's it's like these people aren't gods these people Mm -hmm. are pretty normal kids that have been chosen to do something and it's like well they may not make it Mm -hmm. you know and they could get killed who knows what could happen yeah and i just think it's it, it, it there's another thing too the the female character thing in recent years i think the internet is and social media have been really the problem with this i think the complaining about female characters and the strong female characters and the people that have just decided that that they are the ones who know what's what and why do we have all of these strong women? Why can't they be the way we want them? And it's like, sorry, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and I think I think you get I think you get a very vocal bunch of people out there who just want the same thing over and over again. And it's like, um, not to cast aspersions, but I was at a book event and there were an awful lot of romance readers that showed up at this thing. Nice people, very cool, real nice folks, but some of them, I will say some, 
they just started asking questions about it's like well is there swearing in this or do they have sex before they get married or <laughs> is there a happy ending and i'm like okay if you want barbara cartland i think it, it, it it's like okay if that's what you like that's fine but where's the expansion where's the chance to meet something someone else mm -hmm. thea might be a person that the average reader might have might say hey i knew a girl like that Mm -hmm. And um, in my book, A Moment in the Sun, which is the book that got me, you know, that I, I got into Sunbury Press with, my main character, Ray, was based on this friend of mine that I grew up with, and I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize who she was until later on that I was like, because Ray is a fairly strong character and a fairly pushy character, but she was not. She came from a horrific set of circumstances and pulled herself up but at the same time it was like she had to have help and then she realized that she had to look back at her past in order to figure out how on earth am I going to move forward in my life and help other people with this problem that I've got because I have one still and um, I'd like to think people would recognize those characters and think and you know and, and isn't that the thing too is like people who read it that's you want somebody to find a character they like yeah i think that's the point of writing is you want your character your main character or even your side characters to relate to that reader so that reader enjoys it you know i i you know read a book recently that the author was great but and her writing was good but her characters i had i did, couldn't relate to them right. and i don't even think i finished the book but i was like i i need my i need my readers to relate to my character and you know, people, a lot of my friends and family say, oh, well, Thea, we see a lot of you in Thea. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I want to be her. She is a strong, strong woman. She is somebody who I wish I could be one day. But her development is kind of like myself in a way. Like I, I was not always as strong as I was. You know, I've developed over the years, been through a lot of things, had family to support me and show me how to be a strong woman. And my characters, of course, is going to show that as well. My characters had the hardest time of dealing with the fact that I wouldn't put myself in. You know, people have asked me, where are you in, in your characters? And unfortunately, I am. Elements of me end up in them, but I've tried really hard to stay, to keep a lot of it out. And the reason for that was it was very difficult for me to write about myself. And it was very difficult to me about all that of my life. It was like I had to write and tell the stories of my friends and other people first. And then I was able to sort of dig into myself a little bit more. And I find now I'm scratching only the surface of what I am. And I still don't know where that's going to end. That comes from what some what a, what a, a person told me that I interviewed is I'm trying to figure out how much more is there. I'm digging down deeper. Um, you're digging deeper. Thea certainly digs. Now, uh, I want to ask about some of your other work because uh, now you say this one you started at 13 is still being worked on. What else is out there? <laughs> well, I'm currently working on my new book, which is 
out of my genre that I have ever written in, but it's called What They Don't Tell You About Divorce. And it is a romantic comedy. Um, And again, that is not something I have ever written before. But back in 2016, I went through a divorce Mm -hmm. and I was just kind of journaling one day sitting outside of Giant eating ice cream. Um, (laughs) Very upset, very depressed. I had moved back home to my parents. um, And I just started writing this book because it helped. It was an outlet for my emotions and my feelings. And then I just found it over the summer this year. And I'm like, I got to I got to finish this. And it's actually the first book that I've written that I've really actually put a lot of my own feelings and emotions into. So it, it's actually right now, it, I have a couple readers reading it to give me idea or not ideas, but like just to kind of show any grammar issues, plotting, but I am looking to publish it officially in early 2023. Um, I'm very, very excited about it. It's, it's like I said, it's kind of been, it's very, very personal, but I think people are going to really enjoy it. Well, the concept of divorce, you know, relationships, marriage, I think anybody is going to they'll get that they'll get it and it's like that should resonate there's your there's your step out into well nonfiction. well it, it's it is fiction still <laughs> it's an it's a romantic, romantic comedy, comedy but there's a bit of nonfiction. There's, i should say yes there's a little bit but the character she's she's definitely not a hundred percent like me but some of her emotions that she goes through is definitely and her situations are definitely not something i've been through exactly right <laughs> um but it, it's a good story and i think it's gonna help other people relate who maybe went through a divorce or who just went through a really bad breakup but it is not a self-help book <laughs> Right. It is not it is not to help you with your divorce. It is not going to actually give you tips. It's going to show you kind of her name's Bryn Clark and her story of going through a divorce. All right. Now, uh, where can we find your work? You can find my work on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And okay. I personally have copies as well. Okay. And that was the thing we talked about before we went on in the time we have left here. Um we were talking about like sort of getting out there. We went to the book signing and I mean, we, you know, we go to book events. Uh, sometimes we can go to conventions. Sometimes we can uh, host uh, like an event like, you know, here at a library, for example, or maybe at a bookshop. Hardest thing in the world is to get somebody to be that believer enough to say, okay, yeah, come on and sit down, do this. It's hard, but that's just part of, of what we go through, isn't it? It is, definitely. And and I didn't know how much work went into it until I published in March. And it's it's an everyday thing, you know, especially, you know, you and I both talked, we have jobs, we have full-time jobs, we have part-time jobs. And it's hard to add this. This is another part-time job you're adding on to it. And luckily, I have an amazing husband, Dan, who is willing to let me sit there and post videos and pictures and not 100% be present. And he lets me go and stay late on Monday nights and let him fend for himself for dinner. So, you know, it's good to have a support system that's willing to, to be there for you, help you whenever you are going to these book signings or you're trying to self-publish and self-promote. Yeah. And it is a business. It's, it's, it's our side hustle and, uh, I I just well remember several years ago that uh, a place I used to get coffee at all the time, one of the baristas found out that I was leaving early to go to work because at the time I was only working part-time and I had some time. And I was like, I was just sitting there writing most of the time. And I am leaving her. I'm like, I'm going to work. And and I love her. She just said Mm -hmm. in all innocence and sincerity, I thought you just wrote books. (laughs) 
that's the dream. <laughs> Isn't it? It is. And, I, and that's it. It's like, yeah, well, we wish. And yeah. at the same time, it's, it's like so few ever get to that. We don't, you know, we're not, you know, we are not all Stephen King. Mm-hmm. We're not all Neil Gaiman. We're not all these people that can uh, get automatic purchases, get a Netflix series, that kind of thing. We have to do the work ourselves, but at the same time, it's that takes away from the very thing that we love doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, I don't want to lose sight of why I write. I write for myself. And now, you know, now that I have published, I write for my family and for my friends who have been very supportive and who have read my stuff. I have to remember that I'm writing for them still and I'm writing for myself and that it's not necessarily about getting the next, you know, book deal or Netflix thing or anything like that. It's about, it's about the books. Well, One last question, and I always ask this, advice for the writer that is just starting out, the one that is working on something, the one that's got an idea, what what would you say to them? I actually just talked to somebody um, who was looking to publish. She said she's been working on a manuscript for like 10 years, and I told her, just do it. Just have someone edit it, have a couple people read it, and publish it. Stop delaying. If this is your dream, you need to go for it. Just do it. What is the worst that could happen? And that's what my husband told me, and I'm so glad I did. I might have a few errors in it and, you know, need to make some improvements on it, but I will never, I will never regret publishing. And that's the very thing an old friend of mine said 30 years ago. The only way you do something is to do it. Mm-hmm. And exactly, it's if we didn't do it, we'd spend the rest of our lives going, what if? Yeah. We just can't do that. Yeah. Well, J.K. Wyant, it's great seeing you again. Thank you so much and good luck. Thank you. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.